Good morning. We are in the Gospel of Mark. If you'd please open your Bible to chapter 2 of the Gospel of Mark. We enter a section now, chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus Christ is going to have his first confrontations, as Mark records it, with the scribes and the Pharisees. There'll be five of these uh, recorded incidents, and this is the first of the five. And we're being introduced today to the authority of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, there's never been a time in my lifetime, unless I go back to the 60s and 70s, where authority has fallen out of favor so far in our country. Uh, people abhor authority. The things we're seeing in inner city fights, the, 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 all the, the demonstrations and the destruction and the firebombing and looting and all that, uh, you peel all that away, whether those people are right or wrong, at issue is authority. We don't like somebody telling us what we can and cannot do. And obviously human authority can be a fallen, corrupt, failed system. But at the same time, we are all in submission to some kind of authority at some point in our life. If we go back to the first century, the Jew was controlled by the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. It was a social political government. A social, political, religious government. We differentiate those things in our culture. It's all one. The scribes and the Pharisees, well, there was no three-branch party of system. It was the rabbinic law. It was the way the rabbis ran things, and you were under the Jewish law. And so to have authority in that system was a unique situation. And Jesus Christ comes on the scene, and he challenges the authority of the day by doing things that no one else can do. From the moment Jesus Christ enters the scene, whether we read Matthew's gospel or Mark's conflicts, people want to kill him or worship him. It's binary. There's no gray. There's no apathy toward this Jesus. You either want to kill him or you want to worship him. When he was born, think of this, an infant is born, Herod the king is threatened and wants that infant dead to the point that he executes all children two years and under in the regions of Bethlehem. He was threatened by this infant who would be king. When authority comes on the scene, we have one of two responses. <clears throat> we want to align with, in Jesus' case, worship him, or we want to kill him. <clears throat> Neutrality in the New Testament really is wanting to kill Jesus. There is no apathy toward Jesus. No indifference toward Jesus. You either worship him, or you're killing him. That's the only options we're given in our New Testament. Well, let's jump into the story and see about this Jesus as he comes back. Chapter 2, verse 1. He gathers again another crowd. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, for he was speaking the word to them. If you look back to chapter 121, you'll see this begins at Capernaum. Mark's setting starts out. The gospel of Mark is short. It's compressed. The verbal movement is quick. And so right at 121, he goes to Capernaum, and this whole story begins. Now he returns home. Matthew chapter 9 calls it his own city. Someone's gone on a vacation or some, talked to someone in the first service that was living abroad for a while. They've come home. doesn't mean they're back in their house proper necessarily, but they're home at Franklin. They're home in Middle Tennessee. They're home in Spring Hill. They're home in Brentwood. They've come home. And that's what we have uh, uh, Mark telling us in the narrative. Not uncommon when someone came home that people visited. Depending on where you grew up, where I grew up, it was very common for people to just drop by. Of course, today that's not real 
you know, copacetic unless you're really close friends. You don't just go, hey, let's go drop by and see Michael and Cindy today, you know. Probably shouldn't do that. Uh, but, but there was a day when you just did that. You know, it was a day when I did that. Just go drop by and see people. In a first century village environment, if you've been to a developing country, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a village life. It's a, it's a compound life. It's easy to go visit people. And if something new happens, you want to be a part of it and go see them, how they're doing, welcome them back. So this is nothing out of the ordinary. He was speaking the word to them, Mark records. It is the word logos. Most of you have heard that term. This here, however, refers to the word of God or the word of the Lord. When Jesus is speaking the word, he is teaching. It's impossible to separate what Jesus says from his always deliberate, intentional teaching someone. If he uses a parable, if he's talking to a person, if he's teaching in a synagogue, no matter what he's doing, it's the logos. Jesus is speaking. His presence is the Logos when he comes on the scene. So these interactions we have recorded, like we're going to read today, this is the Word of God. In chapter 138, remember he had this long line of healings, and uh, he wants to leave. And he goes, I came to preach. This is what I came here for. So Jesus came to be the Logos, to teach, whether he's acting uh, w with people, whether he's talking about a parable, whether he's doing something in action, I mean, whether he's speaking the word teaching, the presence of Jesus Christ is his teaching. He is the Logos. Now this, it occurs to me as I say all that, I wonder in the first century if you and I were to have been around this Jesus who came into a home at Capernaum or walked by the Sea of Galilee and gathered a crowd or encountered a woman at the well, that this was an otherworldly experience. This wasn't just meeting a rabbi. He's the God-man. If we were to do it Hollywood-esque, I envision the camera having a tight shot of Jesus and the other person's face, of everything else fading out of the sequence. This, it, he, Jesus Christ, the authority, has walked in the room. He's not just another rabbi. Can't prove it, but in reading through the Gospels, he is the God-man. And my sanctified imagination concludes that this was a show-stopping experience when he went into a situation. Now, let's apply that a little bit. When you open this book, and I, I pray and hope, my, uh, my heart's desire for you as fellowship is you're in the Word daily. When you open this, have you become indifferent to it? I don't mean to cause shame or guilt. I hate shame or guilt. I hate when people shame on me. But I would fail if I didn't ask you from time to time, are you in the Word? Or have you become indifferent or apathetic or neutral to it? This is the mind of God in print. He did not stutter. He did not misspeak. Yeah, it's a big book. Yeah, it's, some of it's hard to read. Sure, I get that. But are you getting up, hopefully, in the morning and spending some time in it? You're taking some notes in it. Are you, as my friend says, Michael, it looks like you haven't read all the Bible, but you've colored most of it. <laughs> are you writing in the margins? Are you taking notes? Are you learning? God's Word, God's Spirit, God's people. Can't grow without it. Um, it this passage just strikes me with this encounter with the living Christ Everything's going to stop in the storyline. And for you and me, it's are you having that relationship with him that begins in his word?
Um, recently, I'll be 60 next uh, March. It's really, uh, uh, some of you are older, some are younger. It's all relative, I know. But that, it's just, that's a daunting hurdle for some reason. I don't know why. 50 was no big deal, but 60 just seems like, wow, that's old. It just seems old. And um, recently, I've, I've done some realignment in my life. And um, I started, how many of you have done a, a reading program where you've read through the Bible in some period of time? How many, how many of you, same hands, failed finishing that program? Yeah, I've done that innumerable times. Um, but I, I started on this, I don't even know why I'm sharing this with you, because I'm setting myself up for failure. Um, I started this 90-day read through the Bible plan. And so far, so good the past seven days. <laughs> hey, that's only uh, 83 to go. Come on now. Um, and I have a friend that... Uh, he heard me talking about it, so he's doing one. So he'll send me a text with a question mark, and I'll text him back, I'm good today, I'm good today. I don't know how long I'll last, but I'll tell you, the temptation to write in the Bible for me, I'm weird, I know that, is really hard. But just reading it, and I've read it, I mean, many times I've read through the Bible. I'm going, I'm seeing things I've never seen before, and I'm making connections I missed. Uh, Spurgeon said, no one ever outgrows the scripture. It widens and deepens with our years. As kindly as I can tell you and as provocatively as I can tell you, you will not grow without time in his word. Period. You won't. You can't. Won't happen. You'll stagnate, you'll live on your laurels, you live on what you know. You might come to church and check a box and I went to church on the weekend. You might really love Christian music and listen to it. You cannot grow apart from time and his word. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm trying to encourage and provoke you to get your nose in the book. God's word, God's spirit, and God's people. You can't grow without it. You won't grow without it. And all of us have seasons where we're doing well and then we're doing poorly. Doing well and doing poorly. And that's fine. That's life. We're, we're lazy, indolent sinners. Let's just all say amen, okay? Let's get over that part of it. What are you going to do now? Today. Tomorrow morning. Well, the story continues. The paralytic has some very persistent friends. Verse 3. They came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, being unable to get to him because of the crowd. They removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Sons, your sins are forgiven. The crowd prevented these four men from getting in the door. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination. Here's four guys carrying a guy on a pallet. The room is completely full of people all the way out the doorway. They're not going to move apart and let this pallet, this undesirable, and his four friends get through the door. But these guys are determined. First century architecture almost surely had flat roofs. Luke chapter 5 calls these tiles on the roof. Notice Mark's description with the verbs. They removed the roof. Literally, that is, they unroofed the roof. Secondly, they had dug an opening. It's one word in Greek. And thirdly, they let him down. Now, put yourself in this situation. If you're up on top of a roof digging around, what's happening in the room? 
debris, right? It's falling, tiles and dirt and stuff are falling in the thing. So what are you doing? You're backing away. What's going on? It's like, it's like when the kids in school and a, a flock of a turkey are everywhere right now, right? And the turkey come by, every kid's looking at the turkey. Forget what's happening in the, on, in the, in the schoolroom, right? We're paying attention to the, the debris and the distraction. The phrase let down is pretty interesting because it's the same word used for letting down nets. Capernaum, because when you go to Israel, you will see Capernaum and will take you to the very synagogue. The one built today is probably a good 60 feet above the one Jesus and Peter were at. But we know, I would say 90% likelihood where Peter's home was. You could throw a rock easily, everyone from where the synagogue to where Peter lived. And from there to Capernaum, some of you could throw a rock to, um, from Capernaum to the Sea of Galilee. It's a fishing area. These guys are like four MacGyvers. They've got this guy in a pout. They can't get to the front door. It's a fishing area. No doubt there's fishing equipment laying around in people's homes. Hey, let's go on the roof. Hey, there's some ropes. We're in. Bingo. We're up on the roof. We're letting him down. And Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Nobody expected those words to come out of Jesus' mouth. No one in the first century, no one reading this story for the first time. The word sons is an affectionate, endearing term. Literally, my child, my child, your sins are forgiven. Now, there may be, I underscore the words, may be a connection between his malady and sin, which would make sense that Jesus says your sins are forgiven. And let's just take a quick sidebar. All of our bodies are fallen bodies. Some of you are less fallen than me. But some of, all our bodies are fallen bodies. We're fallen creatures in a fallen context. Anyone who wears glasses, evidence of a fallen body. Anyone who's got diabetes, who's got degenerative disc disease, fill in a blank. We all have fallen bodies. And so these fallen bodies in a fallen context are decaying. Sometimes, underline that, sometimes our maladies are because of sin. Not always, but sometimes. But don't forget, we're all, the ground's level. We're all sinners in a fallen context. We're not getting healthier and healthier. We're degenerating. We're getting older and older. Well, when Christ says your sins are forgiven, it might be the connection between whatever this man has done, we don't know anything about him, and his condition. Now, healing, whenever Christ heals somebody, is not just his power over nature. It is an illustration of a spiritual reality. If a blind man gets new eyes, it's, he's blind spiritually, and now he can see spiritually. If he or she is deaf spirit, uh, physically, they're hearing spiritually. Every, every healing Jesus accomplishes, even though it's a physical miracle, it's illustrative of a spiritual reality. He did not come to be a 24-7 care clinic and heal everybody that came in the door. Had he done that, he'd have never left Capernaum in the first time. He leaves because the crowds are just coming for a miracle. He says, I came to preach the gospel. I came to solve the ultimate spiritual illness, sin. I didn't come just to be a clinic for people with diseases. So he's, his physical situation is going to illustrate a spiritual reality. Well, the opposition is right at hand, verse 6. But some of the scribes. We're sitting there reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now three times in this verse and the next two, Mark's going to use this phrase reasoning. Uh, I did a 
fairly extensive study on it. You can do it on your own. If you look up that reasoning, reasoning in your hearts through the New Testament, the short answer is it's a bad thing to reason in your heart. Uh, so, so just a, oh, by the way, moral of the story, if you have a problem, don't figure it out by yourself. Get some help. And so they're going to reason in their hearts, and it's going to be a bad thing. They accuse him of blasphemy. And this is logical. Only, a, only God can forgive sins. B, this man claims to forgive sins. C, he's a blasphemer. It makes perfect sense from their view of the law. And they are the ones who are holding up the law. That's their job, to be the scribes and Pharisees, the teachers of the law. Blasphemy to us is one of those throwaway Bible words or used colloquially. Um, Leviticus 24, verse 15, You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God, then he will bear a sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, he the alien as well as the native. Uh, when he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. So blasphemy wasn't just this, you know, he's slandering, he's saying something bad. This is, this is a violation of the law of God. And he should be killed for it. Now, as we go through the Gospel of Mark, you'll notice this is going to be the ultimate of why they crucify him. He was a blasphemer. The moment Jesus comes on the scene, you're going to worship him or try to kill him. And that's what we're seeing depicted in this particular story. The scribes are sowing this conflict. Five conflicts in chapter 2 and 3. This is the first of the five we'll look at. Well, Christ responds, verse 8, immediately. Mark's favorite word, Jesus aware in his spirit that they were reasoning this way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Three times again, Mark, reasoning, reason. Now, just as a pause, this very short gospel, it's a hard gospel. It's a difficult gospel in a lot of respects. It's compressed. His verbal movement is quicker than any gospel record. Three times, Mark goes out of his way to record reasoning, reasoning, reasoning. It's a bad thing. He wants you to see that. Now, what's cryptic about this passage? And if you read verses 8 and 9 again, there's no indication Jesus heard anything. The text goes out of its way to say they're reasoning in their hearts. You know, we read in the Gospels that Christ knows the heart of all men. So put your sanctified imagination cap on. They're thinking this about Jesus. They ain't said a word. And Jesus says to them, verse 8, uh, he knows in his spirit. See that? He's aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way, says, why are you reasoning? So methinks what's going on here is there's not a word been spoken by these scribes. And Jesus is sitting there, the debris falling, the guy's sitting there on the ground. Jesus has said, your sins are forgiven. And he knows exactly, he's, re he's reading their minds, we might say. He says, why are you reasoning in your hearts? That'd be a little unsettling, wouldn't it? That he reads your mind, he reads your mail, he knows all about you. What's easier to do? Now, rabbinic teaching, um, you know this, most of you, rabbinic teaching was not like when we go to school, a teacher tells us things, we have homework, we come back, we write papers, we write reports, we go to the board, maybe we get in groups. Uh, 
education, it's not rabbinics. Rabbinics was case law, best way to say it shortly. Um, so if you, were in, if you were studying to be a rabbi, you had a, let's call him a senior rabbi, like a mentor rabbi, and you sat at long tables with the Torah, and they would ask questions of their students. And the students' answers were not, well, I think it means such and such, or maybe it means that. The student's job was to cite other rabbis who were revered and scholarly, to cite Gamaliel, for example, what Gamaliel has said, and then to be able to quote what Gamaliel said. So rabbinical teaching, these guys were smart. They memorized everything. We have to memorize the multiplication chart, and we're in a tither, you know. They had to memorize everything. And so when you were being taught by a rabbi, you responded by other rabbis have said this, case law. Other precedents said this, this, this. And the rabbi would ask questions to, to put you in a corner, basically, to show you where you were wrong. And then he would say, well, rabbi so-and-so says this, rabbi so-and-so says that. You never said, I say to you, or my opinion. It's like when you're in a small group Bible study and we read a verse and say, what does this mean to you? Don't ever do that with me in a group. Don't ever do that with me in a group. Uh, I mean, I'll cough up a hairball, first of all, and I'll say, I don't care what it means to you. We can talk about how we apply it. I want to know what does it mean in the text. Because if we get that wrong, I don't really care what it means to you. In fact, most heresy comes out of such notion what this means to me. What does it mean in the text? So Jesus is asking a very perceptive question. Why are you reasoning? What's easier to say? He's not telling them. Why are you reasoning in your hearts this way? What's easier to say? What's the second question? Anybody can say your sins are forgiven. Yes, blasphemy. But you can say it. How do you prove it? And then notice what he says. Verse 10. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So Christ now is going to confirm his authority even to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, pick up, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. Verse 12, and he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and glorifying God saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is the first time the self-referent Son of Man occurs. It's going to show up 14 times in your Gospel of Mark. It, there is a tremendous amount of literature on this phrase, Son of Man. You could literally take a graduate course in seminary on the phrase Son of Man. It's that much information out there. To make it very simple, it's the most common way Jesus refers to himself in the Gospel of Mark. He came to serve, not to be served, to give his life a ransom for many. He's the God-man. He's fully God and fully man. His objective here in Mark is to say, I came as a man, although I'm fully God, to die for you, to serve you, to die in your place on your behalf instead of you. John, on the other hand, reveals Jesus as the I am. So the self-revelatory part of the Gospel of John are the seven I am's. The bread of life, the light of the world, the way, truth, and life, the door, the good shepherd, so on and so on. Each of those revelatory statements are then pinned to or connected to an event. When he says in 8.12, he's the light of the world. In chapter 9, he's going to give a guy who's congenitally blind a new pair of eyes. A spiritual condition, blindness, a, a physical condition illustrated by a spiritual reality. The cure of blindness was that you can see. Make sense? So John's self-revelatory is, I am, Mark's is the Son of Man. Now, 
as he's training these men around him, the call to discipleship to the Son of Men is going to be tied to this phrase. The Son of Man came to do these things. The Son of Man has come. And we'll look at that as the gospel unfolds. But the Son of Man was a perfect description to explain the God-man at this point in time. Now, it's not precisely the same thing, but John Stott has a quote. Some of you are familiar with this quote. I love it because it's one of the better uh, succinct ways of explaining this tension of how he can be fully God, fully man. If he had not been man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them sons of God. Great quote by Stott. So this is the fully God, fully man, and we're focusing on the Son of Man, that he came in our place on our behalf. So this self-disclosure, this self-identification is for the first time in the Gospel of Mark, and it'll be important as we continue. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority, pick up your palate and go. So he's proving to the, the scribes, look, even though I say a thing, your sins are forgiven, so that you'll understand who I am, I've got authority to make this guy walk. And of course, the crowd is going to be amazed. Um, I love that the story, there's no interaction with the four guys. There's no interaction with the paralytic. He's motivated because he saw their faith, but he's the perfect object lesson. The debris comes, the middle of the room, the room clears back a little bit. Jesus says these things, everybody's hearing them, so that you may know, get up, walk, take your pallet, and get out of here. Um, immediately, of course, is the way Mark continues to move the story. He got up, immediately picked up the pallet, and went out in the sight of everyone. Now, I love the details, and this is where being a careful reader of the Bible, you'll see cool things. Uh, Jesus says, pick up your pallet. See that? And then Mark comments, he picked up the pallet. That's not just a detail in grammar. That's a story. He came in identified as a man on a pallet. He was identified as a paralytic, an invalid, somebody who couldn't walk or care for himself, someone that's to be lowered down through a hole in a roof. That was his identity. That's your pallet. That's your sin condition. But then when he's healed and forgiven his sins, he picks up the pallet. He's no longer identified by it. And out the door he goes, seeing, in this case, is believing. Two lessons, so what's from this story. Number one, how do you respond to Christ's authority in your life? We are such horizontal-focused fo people, it's pretty easy uh, to just look at life the way it works for us. We have our plans, our dreams, our hopes, our ideas, but you're under a greater authority than your job, than your aspirations, your passions, your hopes, your dreams. There's a higher call for you and me. And the challenge of living the Christian life is that we have westernized it. You've heard me talk about this endlessly. We've westernized the Christian life to if then, and bigger, better, newer, more, and this trajectory. It's not bad, but we've got to tease out the western part of that and look at it from a biblical framework. How do you respond to him as your authority? It doesn't matter what this means to you. It matters what it means. And then how you and I apply it is the ticket. 
What do we do because of it? How do we respond to Christ because of it? When was the last time you were amazed at anything you read? When was the last time it caught you off guard that he has authority to forgive sin? When was the last time you sat at the, you know, the ground of Calvary, we, we referenced it as level. It doesn't matter if you're rich or handsome or beautiful or successful or the best in your class or, um, you know, just a commoner. Just a, I'm just plain folk. I just work at the job and take care of the family. and I'm just, you know, I like farming. I like simple things in life. doesn't matter. The ground at Calvary is level. That's great news. The world looks at us differently. Rank, position, wealth. You have a doctor in front of your name. Are you a teacher? Are you in the medical practice? Are you, are you a successful business person? Are you, do you have a label? Do you have a lot of money? Are you successful by some stamp? Calvary doesn't care. But he's your and my authority. Yeah, I don't like authority. I don't like people telling me what to do. Few of us do. But he's your authority. Is it fair to ask the question that your response to human authority is a reflection on your response to the authority of Christ in your life? The manner in which I respond to authority, the manner in which you respond, does that give a hint to how we respond to the authority? If we're defensive, if we're defiant, if we resist, or if we're at least humble enough to say, you know, wow, I may not agree with that, but you're my authority, you're my boss, you're my client, you're my whatever, and I need to be respectful of that. The reason to me it's an alignment issue is that because he has authority to forgive my sins, I owe him my complete allegiance. Not just partial, not just convenient. But even if I'm racked with guilt and fear and anxiety and despair and all sorts of things, I still owe him my allegiance. And the second question slash so what is a phrase from Luther. You've perhaps heard it before. Martin Luther, the reformer, said, you don't have to get better to be well. And I've loved that since the first time I heard it when I had major back issues 20 years ago. You don't have to get better, Michael, to be well. And in our view of, we have become a health and wellness-obsessed culture. It's, it's fascinating to watch these trends come and go over the decades. That's one of the good parts of being almost 60. It's things come and go. And the health and wellness trend is the obsession around the coffee pot, around the kitchen at work, around our diets. Are we paleo? Are we organic? Are we vegan? Are we... You know, on and on it goes. I mean, once in a while, I like to have French fries. I like to eat a Five Guys once in a while. I can't do it as often as I used to, but I, I don't even care if it's bad for me. And when it hits my stomach, I feel horrible in a good way. <laughs> I love it. I, I love having a Five Guys and fries in my stomach feeling bad about it. It's just, it's really a wonderful feeling. Some of you just wish you could eat that way with your kale, you know. My wife does the kale things in the morning, and God bless her, you know. She's going to outlive me. Good for her. Um, I'll enjoy five guys, and you can enjoy your kale. Go right after it. We need to take care of our bodies. I'm not minimizing that. But to what degree, to what point? 
If your days are numbered and my days are numbered, and I die with a little high cholesterol, I ain't worried about it. You can worry about it. I ain't going to worry about it. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to be ridiculous and foolish. By somebody's standards, I probably am. But you don't have to get better to be well. You're, you're going to have some, you know, you're going to face cancer. You're going to face Alzheimer's. You're going to face dementia. You're going to face degenerative disc disease. You're going to face sciatica. You're going to face breast cancer, ovarian cancer, or prostate cancer. You're going to face it. Another cheery Michael Easley message. <laughs> you're going to die. That our goal is not live forever here. What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or pick up your palate? You don't have to get better to be well. And I would suggest the mark of your maturity and mine, my growth in Christ, is that I can be well no matter how I feel. That I can be well in Christ no matter what I have. That I can be sound in my faith no matter what my experience may try to tell me. That I can be confident in Christ no matter what my children do or don't do. That I can be well. Even though I'm not getting better. Because the reality is we're not getting better. We're getting older. And things don't work the way they used to work. Most of you are young. You're not worried about this stuff. That's fine. I lived in denial most of my life too. It's all right. It really is all right. But are you growing in Christ? Are you in his word? Are you being controlled and submitted to his spirit, which, is, by the way, is an authority in your life? And are you around God's people that put flesh on that equation to tell you you're becoming, you know, whatever? I'm noticing this in your, the way you talk, the way you say that, the snarky sarcasm, the snippy things you do, the way you treat your husband or wife, the way you fill in a blank. What's easier to say? Your sin are forgiven? Or pick up your pal and walk? He's your God. Don't trifle with him. He loves you, sure. But he's not your buddy. He's your Savior. And he died for you and me. And when you and I see him, I imagine all that I know, when you and I see him, we're going to fall on our face. Because you're going to have an encounter with him for the first time that's face to face. And there's only one response when you see the God-man. You're going to fall on your face. And the things of the world will not just grow strangely dim. They'll be gone. Because he's your God, not your buddy. Father, we do love you. We want to love you well. We thank you for your words, true. Encourage us all, not by shame or guilt or regret, to spend time with you. There's no growth apart from time with you, controlled by your spirit and time in your word. Help us not out of duty or obligation or have to, but create in us a desire and a want to and a longing to spend time with you. You are our God. You love us. Why? I do not know. You have compassion on me, why I do not know. But I am thankful. And help me to live, help each of us to live in such a way that we will respond to you as our God, our Savior, the authority over our souls. And that is our number one criteria. How are we living this life you've allocated to us?
to pick up our pallet and walk. In Christ's name, amen.